Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, 3% Conference Special Edition. We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of 3% with incredible guests and powerful conversations with people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here are your hosts, Asha Davis and Rob Schwartz. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today on this special 3% Conference edition of the Disruptor Series podcast is Gene Grow. Gene is the founder and chief truth teller at Grow, a DEI consultancy. Prior to leading this consultancy, Gene was the co-director of Marquette University's Institute for Women's Leadership. She's a professor emeritus of advertising at Marquette as well. She also wrote the book on advertising. No, literally as she is the co-author of the number one selling advertising textbook called Advertising Creative, Strategy, Copy, and Design. Professor Jean Grow, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Oh, what a nice introduction. Thank you so much. I'm honestly thrilled to be here. I've been observing and listening for a long time, and I feel really honored to be a part of this series. Excellent. Listen, it was easy to write because, as you know, you're, it's just the truth. Indeed. We like truth. <laughs> now, by the way, you've achieved a lot in your career. I had to edit this down for our listeners because you have done quite a bit. And I really just have one question. Aren't you tired? <laughs> Actually, sometimes I get very tired. But I could ask the same of you. Are you tired? <laughs> Hell no, I've got espresso in me, I've got a coffee here, I've got some bubbling water, I've got Asha bringing the heat, I'm good. No time to be tired. <laughs> Definitely not. And, you know, in addition to all of those wonderful accolades that Rob just mentioned, we wanted to extend an, a special congratulations to Eugene on the launch of your DEI consultancy, GROW. And so on your website, it states that GROW is dedicated to helping advertising agencies, marketing firms, and advertising education programs, which we know are really important, to unlock what we call empathetic truths that the, the listeners can't hear my uh, air quotes right now, but to, to really unlock those empathetic truths and create a culture of belonging. So curious, can you explain to our listeners what an empathetic truth actually is? Well, for me, an empathetic truth is a way of sharing what I call unvarnished realities of what's actually happening inside an agency or a corporate culture. And in, I do it in ways that are radically honest, while I think trying to reflect the empathy, particularly for the people who've been harmed. And I think that there's this tendency among DEI practitioners to create safe spaces that end up focusing on white fragility. Mm. And I think that's really ineffective because it impedes change. And so I think empathetic troops create brave spaces and brave spaces are what you really need to create sustainable change. That's really interesting. So just to kind of unpack that a little bit. So are you saying when we're talking about these empathetic truths, is it empathy towards people that are affected, but also people whose legacy might be actually affecting people as, you know, as we think about, you know, white versus black and kind of the history of the different cultures? It's both, but I, I have a tendency to open my empathetic heart more to the people who have really experienced the harm, the people that we're not seeing in our industry. At the same time, if you're not empathetic to what I think 
white people, particularly white men, view as potential loss, you're going to lose them in the conversation. So it's this kind of dance that you have to do. But I really think there has to be some kind of come to Jesus moment. Right. We live in a patriarchal, racist culture, society, economic framework, and we have to talk about that. Yeah. And it's interesting because your official title at Grow is actually Chief Truth Teller, which says a lot. And you mentioned this before, but when you read kind of the reviews and how people sort of describe you, that that notion of radical honesty just continues to come up. I'm curious, you know, tell us a little bit more about why people are actually saying that to you and, and why that level of honesty, not just, you know, traditional honesty, if you will, but just, you know, radical honesty honesty is is so important in this DEI space. I mean, I'm just going to go back to the notion that without unpacking the history that got us to where we are, we're not going to be able to move forward. And I think the more that we, it's a little risky word, but the more that we pander to people's fears and sad feelings about change, the more progress sort of comes to a halt. Mm. And, you know, the truth is, that attitude has not landed me a gazillion clients. It's landed me clients that I want to work with and clients that are serious about change. And it's given me in some ways the freedom to turn clients down. When I have talked to a potential client and I ask what their measurable goals are and you know the strategy to get there and they can't give me that, you know, my option is I can help you build that or I'm going to have to say no to what you're asking me to do because coming in and doing a one-off on X, Y, or Z isn't going to help them and certainly doesn't, in my opinion, help my reputation. So some people are comfortable with that and other people are very irritated with that. I mean, just on that note, Jean, do you find that there's enough motivation? And I say that beyond the motivation, if I'm, you know, let's say I represent the company, you come in with a proposal. Do I have enough motivation beyond, well, it's the right thing to do? Are they understanding? I mean, there's been a lot of studies, I'm sure you know, just on kind of the economic miracle that's created with diverse teams. (laughs) I think in some ways this is the the answer becomes geographic and not exclusively so. Mm -hmm. But I think in bigger markets with bigger agencies that have multinational brands, at least at the beginning, they were forced into this. And then I think there became this sort of opening and understanding. And pretty soon it was, you know, a movement that's been embraced. But in smaller markets where you don't have big brands putting that kind of pressure and a lot of the agencies are family owned, it's the second and third generation and they're in a market where they think that they can't find diverse talent, there's a lot of resistance. And I think it's going to come to bite them. But in that sector, I think there's not the understanding of truly how important this is and that the train has left the station. Right. It's interesting because, you know, Rob just mentioned kind of some of the motivations and Rob, you used the example of its positive impact on a business standpoint. And and a lot of these studies have been done for years, right? But it really took 
spending almost nine minutes watching George Floyd die mm-hmm. for people to actually quote unquote care. Right. And it's like folks knew the importance of diversity before we saw an officer kill a man on camera. But it actually took public outrage for the brands to care which obviously in turn forced agencies to make things a priority that weren't necessarily a priority before. And I'm curious, Jean, in terms of your perspective, do you think that this focus on diversity, even in these big markets, is this a trend? How do we keep people caring even when it seems on the surface that the news isn't necessarily talking about these incidents as much? I... I feel really sad when I'm answering this question because I think to a certain degree, it is a trend. And I thought this and and I, it's, you know, you sent me questions and I was thinking about them and I immediately like you tied it to George Floyd's murder. It's that is the moment. And I think that when that conviction came in, there was this sense of, oh, well, we don't have to worry about this anymore. And I saw it coming and it made me so mad. And, and now here it is. And I think that the energy is dissipating, especially in smaller markets, or it's, it's made an opening for really racist points of view to get more airspace. And I just think it's really problematic. Yet, at the same time, I think that The people who are embracing this white patriarchal model, they can't run away from reality forever. And I just hold this, you know, MLK's quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends for justice. I just I have to hold that in my heart because it's going to be a long journey. But unfortunately, I think for some agencies, it is a trend. Well, I think there's maybe there's some perspective and uh I don't think we're wrong in that, and not to just graph our propaganda onto George Floyd as being a disruption. It was a disruption. There's, there's no question. And there was a conventional thinking that it disrupted, which was, oh, America's coming along. Right. But I think the degree of violence and just seeing it that, you know, those eight or so minutes, that was really alarming. But I step back for one second. And I'll, I'll throw in some some sports stuff here, maybe to help us. You know, it starts with, you know, uh, really with Jim Thorpe. You know, here's a Native American who started to show people that, hey, there are other athletes here, you know, back in the day. And then, you know, to, to Jackie Robinson, uh, on through into uh, the emergence of, of black quarterbacks in the NFL. And I think as you start to look at even the entertainment business, too, the rise of you know, shows like Good Times and Chico and the Man and on to where we are today. I think the Martin Luther King quote is good here because I think you are seeing, and this is, you know, the white guy talking, but you are seeing an arc of movement. And I think George Floyd was just this incredible flashpoint. And I I connected it because I was living in LA at the time to Rodney King. So between Rodney King and then George Floyd, I, again, I start to see the insanity of America, but at the same time, I do start to see the movement, even though it is a bit of a super tanker here, it is moving in the right direction. Now you can all crap on me. 
No, I, I think it's it's tricky, you know, and, and I think that depending on your walk of life, you look at things in a different way, you know. So as a black person watching that, it wasn't surprising to me, unfortunately. And mm. and seeing how surprised, you know, non-black people were at at this happening was like, this is not the first time that this has ever happened. I think from my perspective, and at least my sort of circle, the thing that was the most disheartening was the apathy. So the the fact that you had three other officers just standing around while someone died, the fact that there could be a crowd of people that could have a camera for almost 10 minutes and nothing happened. So he knows that someone's recording and he still doesn't care, you know, and so it's kind of going to what Jean, you were saying before in terms of is it a trend of people putting all this energy and investing, you know, in quote unquote diversity in a variety of different ways. How long is that going to last before it goes back to apathy? So I want to just sort of talk about two sides of this that I think might be interesting. So first, I grew up with a brother who was a really evil person and he was a police officer. I haven't seen or spoken to him in 20 years. But when I did have him occasionally in my life, I heard things that were horrifying. So I, I know from that experience and was not surprised mm. at all by what I saw. On the flip side, I now have someone I care a lot about, someone I've known for years, who is a police negotiator. And he's one of my truth tellers. So he, and he actually speaks at brand conferences because he mm negotiation can be used in many ways. He's conservative and we've had many talks and he has said to me, first of all, that officer would have been gone mm. under his watch. And second of all, as this all unfolded and we had all the protests and on and on and on, he went from, I could never consider voting to a Democrat to I no longer have a party. So he's, to me, the hope. He's the person that represents that space of someone trying to make sense of this in a position of power that can be harmful. And he's making different choices. And he is mm. speaking out all over the world about this. Yeah. But to me, there's hope in that. And I think that you can unteach racism as much as you can instill it. You know, and I think you, know, you mentioned white fragility. I think, you know, when I read that book and when I read How to Be an Anti-Racist, both those books, there were some accepted things that I thought that I was being on the right side of the argument on, which I wasn't, hmm. you know. And uh, to me, one of the big revelations was this benign notion, this seemingly positive notion of, well, don't see color. And I think where, there's, where those books were revelatory, which is, no, no, you must see it because the path that Asha took to get to where she is today is not identical in any way, shape or form to mine. And she did not have these, you know, opportunities so easily uh, in front of her. And I think you can learn things and become, you know, just more attuned with this stuff, but you gotta, you know, you gotta crack up in a book. You gotta, you gotta watch some stuff on YouTube. You gotta absorb it and you gotta ingest it. And then you've gotta talk to people. Yeah, I mean, speaking of hope, you know, we're we're here talking about the three percent conference, which oh right, <laughs> it's a very amazing. 
<laughs> Very amazing organization that Rob, you, you sit on the board of and, and Jean, you've done some work with, with the 3% as well. And, you know, obviously it was started initially to bring more women into the creative field. You know, essentially, as we all know, their name was derived because at the time there was only 3% of creative directors were women. And since their inception, you know, they've really evolved to expand to, you know, people of color and bringing more people of color into the industry. Jean, curious because, you know, how do you see these things evolving over the next decade? Because, you know, we've seen some data from the four A's that 70% of our industry is still white. And even though, you know, we're seeing more folks of color get hired, not a lot of them are in those senior levels. So, you know, how do you see that evolving over the next decade? Well, first, I want to just give a shout out to Kat, because I think what she's done is amazing. And I, you know, I've had a little bit of a close up view. I spoke at the first 3% and then later in London and did some curriculum writing for her and have interviewed her. And so I've just watched this evolution and what mm-hmm. she's done to me is nothing short of amazing. Mm-hmm. But to your question, I think that what we're going to see kind of reflects what I said before. I think that the bigger markets are going to be taking the lead because of bigger brands making demands and because of easier access to diverse talent. And I want to be careful when I say that because I think that's also a pitfall in small to medium-sized markets where I hear, well, we can't find diverse talent. And I think, frankly, that's laziness because there are a lot of ways to find that. So I think that there will be change, but I think in in some ways, agencies like PBWA have an obligation. And I I have the sense that that's how you feel about it. When I see the work you do, there's this sense of we have the resources, we have the connections, we can make commitments that others can't. And so we're going to do this. And I think that we need leadership like that in this industry. And that's going to help push things forward. And I can speak to other things that I've noticed at other agencies, but I just think it's it's the bigger agencies in the bigger markets, or at least bigger markets. I think smaller agencies in bigger markets can do great things too, but I think that's where you're going to see the movement. We'll see. We'll see. And do you think that remote work could potentially be a, a solution for some of those, you know, smaller markets? Mm. Well, I think that COVID taught us mostly horrible things, <laughs> but one of the beautiful things that came out of it was learning that remote work not only works, but for many people, not all people, but for many people, it was actually quite exhilarating. And I think that that opens up. Now you're, you can't tell me anymore. We don't have access to diverse people, right? Because you now not only have the entire United States, you have the world, right? You diverse people from anywhere. I also think that we need to just sort of rethink the industry needs to rethink recruiting. And there seems to be just this huge focus on going to the right four-year colleges and engaging with high schools to kind of create this pipeline. That's great. But four-year college, I was a college professor and here I am saying, why? Mm. Somebody to do interesting data things, they don't need a four-year college degree. There are incredible writers and designers 
who don't have a degree and don't need a degree. And, you know, I think Doug Melville talked about the idea of slashers, but that idea of poaching from adjacent industries is really important. Mm. Right. And then I would say there's the industry as it's gotten lean has basically relied on internships to be the training ground. And that's been problematic, especially for diverse young hires, because they often don't have as many internships. So they come in and they're not as prepared just because they didn't have access. And yet they're held to the same expectations as somebody who had connections and had three internships, four internships before they landed the job. So I think somehow reinstating training, mentoring programs in some way would be really, really helpful. Yeah, we, we have a uh, university professor saying you don't always need a four-year degree. That sounds like radical honesty to me. <laughs> that sounds like disruption to me, Asha. I don't Definitely. Know. I know. I'm just the guy trying to sell T-shirts and mugs over here. <laughs> Definitely. And, and um, I, I just have one more question on this before you know we move on to your journey, Jean. But you, know, you talked a little bit about kind of that pipeline. And I think, I, at least from my perspective, I'm seeing a little bit more of that start starting to change and, and you're seeing more of, you know, the juniors coming up being a, a bit more diverse, but what do you think is causing that bottleneck at the top? You know, especially when you think of going above director level positions as you get to, you know, VPs and C-suites and, you know, that's really where a lot of the gaps are when you talk about, you know, diversity. What do you think is causing some of those gaps and, and is there really a way to get past that? So I think there's two things. And interestingly, I was thinking about this question when I got it or the idea behind this question. And I ended up last evening, I was having uh, drinks with a former student who is a black male and he just landed a wonderful job at BBDO in Chicago, doing great things. And so I proposed this to him. What did he think? Mm -hmm. It was a very interesting conversation and it in many ways mirrored what I was thinking. So I would say black talent often has the sense that they're not welcome. Hmm. You know, all the bells and whistles are in place, but there they are. And as he said, we feel it, we see it and we experience it. And then he said, and then I look up and all I see at the top are white. And I said to him, wow, that's, I mean, that feels to me like a, his, and just the way he was speaking, I said, that seems like a historical reflection. And he then went on to talk about, it's like seeing slave overseer. Like mm -hmm. there's no possibility of me being there. Now, rationally, he doesn't believe that, but that's the sense that he lives with every day. And then we talked about, code switching. And he just said, of course, I have to code switch. I can't possibly not come to work and not code switch. I have to do it. And so then we went to that whole discussion. So I think that that kind of isolation really is problematic. And then, you know, we talk about, I'm just not getting paid very much. <laughs> So we know entry-level salaries are just not great in advertising. So, I mean, but we all know that. So the more I thought about it, I proposed this to him, and I'll propose it to you. Yeah. 
why don't we bring these diverse young people, the Gen Zs, who really, I think, are going to change this world, why aren't they brought into C-suite discussions, like regularly? Like, come sit at the table, have a discussion. They are part of it, and not just a one-off, but they are regularly a part of serious decision-making. Obviously, they don't make the final decision, but they are part of it. Two things happen when you do that. One, you're going to get a point of view that you would never have had before as executives. And two, these young people, probably for many of them, the first time seeing what it looks like to be an act in management. And so they're beginning to see this whole role modeling, and it gives them a sense of hope and agency. Mm. So, I mean, just bring them into the C-suite. That is very disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and promote people of color into the C-suite so that, you know, it doesn't just have to be, you know, Gen Z there. So this is the part in the program where we talk a little bit about your journey. So I'm curious, when did you first decide that you wanted to steer your career towards the DEI space? Because you haven't always, you know, focused here. To be honest, it's been something I've been thinking about for years because my research has been around this since the late 90s when I went to Nike to figure out why they were doing what they were doing in terms of labor practices and how it was impacting their brand. But in more current time, I would say in the last few years, I was seeing a curricular stagnation. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like my program, but frankly, a lot of ad programs, they don't reflect the reality of the industry. And so many practitioners have never been in the industry. So I saw that. And then in my program, our diverse faculty were leaving. Mm -hmm. So I knew that there was a problem and I knew it was a problem I wasn't going to be able to fix. Then sort of to what I said before, my last big research project, again, around diversity, this time I was looking at talking with people who had launched and then supported the Time's Up advertising. And frankly, it revealed more about diversity issues than it did gender. And that was really interesting and insightful. And I kept thinking, hmm, what can I do with this? And then George Floyd's murder was just, it was horrible on so many levels, but it just seemed that horror was just amplified when I saw how students reacted and how my institution did not react. Hmm. And that kind of sealed the deal. I was like, I can't wake up every day and feel like I need to take three showers. So they offered an early retirement and I was like, sounds great to me. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a great story. So, you know, you, you talked a little bit about this before about millennials and Gen Z and, and, you know, you're one of the many people that really do think that they're going to be leading the future. And really when it comes to helping to drive corporate as well as political equity policies, how were you seeing some of those conversations evolve during your time on campus? And how do you think, you know, cause you've been on campus for, you know, as you said, a number of years, right? So I imagine 20 years ago, maybe these were not the same, maybe they were. And so curious to see how how you think that those have evolved and also, you know, how those conversations on campuses are impacting this generation's, you know, expectations when it comes to their professional life? Well, first, I think that Gen Z is just 
qualitatively different than any generation that I've seen in the classroom before. They are, they speak truth, they don't suffer fools, and they have zero intention of doing work that's going to cause more harm. Mm. So you have to understand what harm means because they're not going to go along with almost anything that is going to be harmful from their perspective. And honestly, I would say that this crosses race and gender and ethnicity and sexual orientation. It's a generational shift. Mm. That's what to me is so exciting because I think once they are in a position of power, the industry could just be, it, it will be groundbreaking and revolutionary. So they're amazing. I think they're truth tellers and we haven't seen anything like them. And Jean, did, did you see this Gen Z generation, you know, the, um, the traits that you're describing, did you see this pre-COVID? Yeah, I did. I saw it pre-COVID, but I think George Floyd and COVID both just amplified it to degrees that are remarkable. And I can say I even saw some of my students, the first gens who going to the university is really almost cost prohibitive. Some of them thought, screw it. Why am I paying for this? Mm. Once COVID hit, they understood how much they could do remotely. And they started doing these amazing things building apps and on sites and doing their own kind of interesting little promotional gigs. And it was just like, they would attend class. And I felt like the biggest dinosaur on the planet. And I've prided myself in trying to stay current and generally being able to do so. But man, once remote learning hit, it just really amplified their energy. Mm. And what impact do you think that, you know, social media has had on that because even, you know, I'm, I'm in the millennial stage and I, I can't imagine having this level of Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of these things. And, and anything you think or anything anybody thinks can be amplified globally in an instant. You know, do you think that that is, um, you know, impacting, you, you know, this, this generation in, in this way? Well, the one thing that I can say that makes me a little bit sad about this is they're not readers. Right. So you, I mean, you all know that, but it, I think this is where I'm a little old school, but I do think there's a lot to be learned from history. There's a, when we understand from where we came, we can see the patterns repeating themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel a little sad when I think about their lack of interest in that historical understanding of our industry and frankly of our country. I mean, they're just, they're here and they're moving forward. But at the same time, because they are very much a do no harm generation, I think that social media to them has the potential to be used in a much more I think, positive and effective way. This reminds me of, you know, back in the day when Google had a mission statement that was, you know, do no harm or do no evil. It was do no evil. 
And, you know, of course, something, you know, something changed. I mean, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, Google's brought some very good things to the world. But I'm curious to see, and we're not going to know this till it unfolds, but how do you go from kind of a do-no-harm orientation up into capitalism? And can we find a way, you know, there's these theories about compassionate capitalism. You know, is there a way for capitalism to have a little more elasticity to have more people participate and more people do well as a result of, of a core group of people doing good? I feel like the answer to that lies in some ways in a re-envisioning of what being a CEO means. Hmm. <laughs> I think that being considered successful as a CEO has been in the last probably 20 to 30 years incredibly tied to every quarter's earnings and keeping shareholders happy. Right. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the fundamental flaw mm. of the current state of capitalism. Right. Because if you don't have a long-term vision, which means sometimes you're going to make decisions that might have a down quarter because you're either going to live up to a certain ethic that you've determined to be essential or what you're trying to achieve can't be achieved, you know, in this turnaround, 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 but it's going to take six months or a year. But markets don't like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me is the sticky point. Yeah. And I, I don't know how we change that. Well, I think you nailed it because I think, uh, I guess it was Friedman, he, you know, is he the person who came up with this yes. shareholder value concept? And what you're suggesting is migrating to, let's call it, stakeholder value and by stakeholder not just internal stakeholder but external stakeholder you know i once saw a a really beautiful chart so it's such an elegant chart when i was in japan and uh the chart said that that for this particular company we have three components that that are important to us it's our customers of course it's our internal people at the company and it's also our community and by community they meant really the world community and i think that trinity of internal customer and community to me was the best expression of wow that's a company that i want to believe in and i want more companies to be like that because i often think just you know as you as you you know laid out your gene that some companies are only achieving one out of three yeah it's true Speaking of amazing brands that empower, Jean, you've worked with a few of them, you know, Nike, Coca-Cola, and even Kellogg's, right? What have you seen? Are there things that certain brands have done or that they can do, you know, in the future to, you know, be better leaders in the DEI space to kind of bring it back there, both internally as well as externally in the world? Well, the two that I can speak to or that I'm choosing to speak to are Coke and Nike. And I think that when Coke stepped forward, when Georgia put forward Mm. voting limitations that were troubling, Mm. that to me is a hero kind of brand. Right. But at the same time, we have Texas right now. And there is an echo chamber of silence. Mm. And, you know, frankly, I think that's just sexist crap. But it doesn't surprise me because we live in a social structure that's patriarchal. So it was thrilling to see what happened in Georgia and Coke was a leader and maybe Texas 
brands will step up. And Nike is really, Nike's an interesting brand because I did so much research on the launch of the women's brand over a 10-year period. I really understand how they positioned themselves around empowerment and how it came into being and what happened behind the scenes, which is nothing like what you saw for the brand. In fact, there was huge resistance to that. So in current times, I would say that Nike standing by Colin Kaepernick while other brands and the NFL walked away from him really affirmed the brand that mm. we as consumers know. Right. But then you have this other side, which given what I know about their history around women, you know, they basically penalize women athletes for having female bodies like what? And that's really problematic. So I still think that Nike struggles a bit with how to really live its brand messaging. I think it does about an 80% great job and then it just goes. So. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for that. I think, you know, that these are really important truths, you know, and, and we really uh, appreciate that. You know, this is the, the portion of the show where we get your advice for our listeners, Jean. And so we're going to ask you to share two pieces of advice because we're being a little bit greedy today with our, with our 3% <laughs> listeners. So the first piece of advice is, you know, what advice would you give to white leaders looking to drive more equity across their organization? So I hope I get more than one slot on this answer. Yes. Um, so the first things I'll say, I think, are probably not new. Um, so I would say, you know, silence is not an option. White leaders need to stop avoiding hard conversations and stop protecting particularly white male privilege. I mean, I, that's not new information. I think creating structures within an agency, again, not new information, codes of conduct, bill of rights, you know, the creating clear DEI strategies that you can measure, all of that's great because what's measured is going to get done. But I think there are a few other thoughts that maybe aren't so commonly talked about and kind of goes back to some of the things I said. So I think we need to stop focusing on four-year colleges. That's just like, knock it off. It's, there are really interesting people in really great places, poaching from other industries. And I think also creating physical satellite agencies in the neighborhoods where your talent live, work, and play. Mm. First of all, when people see an agency in their neighborhood, it may not be the full-fledged agency. Maybe it's the digital set that's there. And there's some kind of display, much like you did when you started the Disruptor series and you were down in the lobby. So you have something where they can see and it's like, wow, I didn't even know this existed. And then giving space for people in the neighborhood to engage, to use that space on the weekend, to do something so that you become visible to that neighborhood. And at the same time, the talent, the workers in the agency are moving into a culture in a really more honest and authentic way. Mm. They're going to where the people live. Hello, here's some fun restaurants. Here's the music. Let's go have some fun. That's a great idea. That's a cool idea. Yeah, that's very disruptive, Gene. <laughs> 
Okay. And, you know, the second piece of advice that we're looking for is, you know, what advice would you give talent of color that is currently experiencing some of those inequities? Maybe they don't work in a place with leaders as awesome as you, Jean. And so what can they do to elevate in their career when they're operating in that type of environment? Other than quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can't say go start your own shop. No, I, can't. I think, I mean, some of these things, again, are kind of no brainers. So, of course, you want to have external mentors, but have more than one. I think try to get two or three or four people outside that you can lean on because you're going to get different perspectives and that will help. And I say document, 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 not necessarily for legal reasons, although that's fine. But I think journaling or drawing is really therapeutic. And so I think exploring the pain that you're going through and the frustration and getting it out rather than keeping it in can be really, really useful. And who knows, maybe you can write a book later. You know, I think I think it could be interesting. I would also say take the risk to stop code switching. But I say that as a white person. So you know, my caveat is if you can bear the backlash, because, you know, easy for me to say, but I think that if you can possibly try to do that, I think just being more yourself will build confidence. And if it's not accepted, well, then, you know, it is not the place you want to stay. And then I would say, and I think this, I want to say this particularly to my Gen Zers, because they struggle with this, two things. Nurture yourself outside of advertising. Like advertising is not the end all and the be all. And in fact, the people who do the best work are students of culture. So go out and play and have a life outside of advertising and let it include things like meditation and walking in your neighborhood, like take care of yourself. And the last one is really don't use drugs and alcohol as a balm to your anger and frustration. It's a really dangerous path. And this industry is so about alcohol. I mean, we all know how many agencies have, you know, the beer room, the bar room. And and I've seen a lot of harm come by using that as the solution. So take care of yourself and advocate for yourself. And then go ask if you can have a chat next time there's an executive meeting and they'll think you're crazy. But why not? Well, Gene, you know, you really, you, man, I don't know. I'm thinking a lot, Asha. I'm like yeah. going overtime on this one. Thank you for making us think so much. And uh, we really appreciate, you know, all your disruptive thoughts and, and frankly, all that you've given to the business. And I know you're not done, but just uh, the textbook, the energy that you've given your students and uh, certainly uh, all the time and energy you've given to us, uh, we really appreciate it. Well, Rob, I can't thank you enough. I think you've built an agency that is a role model for a lot of other agencies. And Asha, you've added such an interesting and radically honest perspective <laughs> to this process. So I'm really grateful to have been invited to be on this series. And it's just been a wonderful honor to share time with both of you. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jean. And for up and coming Gen Zers, you may see Rob and Asha in the Disruptor series in an upcoming textbook near you. Uh, <laughs> yes, you are in my textbook. 
So very excited about that. So thank you so much, Jean, for allowing us to be a part of that. And, and thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. For all of our listeners, make sure that you follow the Disruptor Series on LinkedIn, Instagram, and visit our website at www.disruptorseries.com. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.